0: Good morning. Let's open our Bibles again to the 25th Psalm, Psalm 25, as we continue to work through this, uh, another one of the songs of Scripture. Some people refer to them as the songs of Jesus, and for very good reason, because uh, the book of Psalms is the Hebrew hymn book, and so this would have been the songs that Jesus himself sang, which is a precious thing to think about. Psalm 25 verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. We'll stop there this morning. What do you want your enduring testimony to be? How do you want your epitaph to read? How do you want to be remembered? If you could choose the words on your tombstone ahead of time, what would they be? In a matter of, of a few words to capture the essence of who you were in this world. Of course, there are the humorous epitaphs we all enjoy, like the famous one, I told you I was sick. Or the dentist and his wife, both of whom were, uh, worked in the field of dentistry and the husband died first and his tombstone said, I filled my last cavity. <laughs> and then years later when his wife died, hers said, me too. People say goofy things when they're alive and even when they're dead. But what, what do we want the enduring testimony of our life to be? If we could capture it in a few words. Well, when I ask myself these questions, I think of Enoch in Genesis 5 where we read this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. If Enoch had died naturally and been buried, his tombstone simply would have said, Here lies Enoch. He walked with God. That's all we know about this guy. Twice in Genesis 5, it says, Enoch walked with God. That was the enduring testimony of his life. The same is said of Enoch's great-grandson, Noah, in Genesis 6, 9, where it says, These are the generations of Noah... Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The prophet Micah sums up a good life this way. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. What has the Lord required of us? To walk humbly with him. Walk with him. And there's no greater calling in life than to walk with God. To walk along the paths that he has laid out for us in his word. And when we do this, we end up where God wants us to be. Look again with me at verse 10 where it says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. What does the Bible mean by that? What what does the Bible mean by the paths of the Lord? Well, it refers to his prescribed way of life. This is how life works best, so to speak. Stated by the designer of life, the creator of life refers to the highway to His richest blessing. So to walk in the paths of the Lord means to walk according to the way that He has prescribed for us in His word. And it's the highway to His richest blessing. And of course, this was the purpose of uh, God giving the law to His people, was to, to display His holiness and His righteousness, but also to show them this is the path of blessing. And like all human beings, we inherited from Adam a sin nature, and therefore we resist God's law. We resist the good way. By nature, we go our own way. We are like sheep who have gone astray, and we choose our own way. So the word paths, of course, is related to the word walk, because that's what we do on paths, right? We walk. So we're talking about the manner of life. How do we live? The blessing of the Lord is upon those who walk with him as the pattern of their life. Not just sporadically here and there, but consistently Growing in Christ, maturing to the point where the pattern of life is the pattern that God has laid out in his word, which ends up then being the path of greatest blessing. Proverbs 2 describes the paths of the Lord as the walk of wisdom. It says this, For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. When we are pursuing godly... Wisdom, it results in us walking what Solomon called the good path, the good path of God's blessing. But the world and our sin nature and the devil tell us otherwise. They tell us that the good life can be found outside of God's prescribed way of living. But all three are liars that we must resist. But notice in verse 8 that the the songwriter is continuing his emphasis on the goodness of God. But he takes it in a little different direction. In verse 7, we noted that he pleads, Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The message of that verse is, Lord, retain the reputation of your goodness by remembering the promises that you've made and and choosing to continue to forget my sins. And now in verse 8, he testifies to another expression of God's goodness. That is, that he leads and keeps us on his pleasant path. Or what we might call the path of his goodness. He instructs sinners in the way Who does that apply to? Every one of us. Applies to every one of us. That we are the sinners who need to be instructed in the way. But not only do we need to be instructed in the way. We need to choose to follow the way. That brings us to our big idea this morning. The good Lord directs, forgives, and blesses us in proportion to the measure of humility that he sees in our hearts. We have a God of goodness. And what that means is, part of his nature is to be self-giving. He gives of himself. And he gives good things to us. I mean, even even when we are not living in his way. I mean, even before we came to know the Lord Jesus, God was showing his goodness to us. Jesus says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There are blessings that we experience in this life just because we are created in the image of God. But then when we come to know God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a whole new level of blessing. And the good Lord directs, forgives, and blesses us in proportion to the measure of humility that he sees in our hearts. And that's what we're going to see throughout these verses, that God's goodness... Longs to bless us, but the extent to which we enjoy the blessings of God, the extent to which we receive them and live within the sphere of His blessing, is dependent upon the state of our heart. It's in accordance with the humility that He sees in our hearts. So we see the goodness of God and his intentional leadership of our lives through his word and the wise counsel and example of others. And when we humble ourselves before God, he leads us. And this is an overflow of his goodness. Salvation of our souls is perhaps the greatest outworking of the goodness of God. When I reflect upon how the Lord intruded into my life at the age of 19 and opened my eyes to see how sinful I was and how desperately wicked my heart was and how desperately I needed the Savior. I came to fall in love with the goodness of God and came to fall in love with this passage from Titus chapter 3 because it describes me before I was saved, but it also describes the love of, of God that rescued me. Titus 3.3 3 says. For we ourselves. Were once foolish. Disobedient. Led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. But. But when the goodness. And loving kindness. Of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We once were foolish, disobedient, and trapped to various sins, living in perhaps ignorance and even willful sin and rebellion. And yet the goodness of God intruded into our lives in opening our eyes and our hearts to the gospel. His goodness and loving kindness. That's why God sent the Lord Jesus Christ. It was His goodness and kindness. He saw us in our desperate condition and He knew that He couldn't leave us to Ourselves He wouldn't leave us to ourselves He would have been just and righteous to do so But he wouldn't Because of his goodness Because of his kindness And so he sent the only son of God To die in our place on the cross And be raised from the dead As the only sufficient Sin bearing sacrifice And savior that you need That I need And we enjoy these blessings of God's goodness the most when we grow in humility. So in verses 8 through 13, we see three ways the Lord shows his goodness to those whom he saves. Number one, the Lord directs us on his path when we are humble enough to be led. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God is instructing us in the way. Look at verse 9. He leads the humble. He leads the humble. The word translated humble may also be translated meek. Which is a word that I don't think we give enough attention to in, in Christian churches. But the word meek is a beautiful word. Unfortunately, some Christians follow the example of the world. And they think of meekness as weakness. But that's not what it is. Biblical meekness is strength under control. It's finding your strength in submission to the one who possesses all strength. That's what meekness is. Numbers 12.3 says that now the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. Isn't that an interesting statement? Moses, who is still heralded as being the greatest human leader through all of biblical history, is referred to as being the most meek man who was alive at that time. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is finding your strength in submission to the one who possesses all strength. Psalm 45, verse 4, in a praise of prayer to the Almighty King, it says, In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds for the cause of truth and meekness. Oh, what would happen in this world If they saw coming from the churches that claim Christ. A combination of truth and meekness. Uncompromising commitment to the truth of scripture. And yet held in a meek manner. Strength under control. Because we get our strength from the one who possesses all strength. And so we can live respectively and calm in this world and don't have to throw a hissy fit every time something happens in the culture that is disapproving to God and therefore should be disapproving to us. But we can grieve in our spirits and yet remain meek, having strength under control. Meekness is a godly virtue Psalm 37 says, In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. David Paulson describes meekness this way. Meekness is not weakness in the negative sense. It's weakness in the positive sense. Jesus was under the hand and voice and will of another, heeding the voice of his Father, fully trusting God's promises, fully obeying God's will. Jesus was meek. Now, why did the Holy Spirit inspire these words this way here in verse 9? He leads the humble in what is right. Well, I think the answer to that is because it's difficult to lead a proud person. It's virtually impossible to lead a proud person. Because the proud person already knows everything. They already have a plan, an agenda that they're going to push regardless of the pushback that they may receive from those who are older and wiser than they are. Proverbs warns against this all the time. But God draws near to the humble. He leads the humble. We see many examples of this in the scriptures both positively and Negatively, for example, as Moses was leading the people, uh, getting them ready to, to, to leave Mount uh, Sinai, uh, God says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff necked people. What was God saying? God was essentially saying, You want to go your own way? Then go. But you're going to do so without my empowering and protective presence. You want your way that badly? I'll let you have it. And then maybe when you come to the end of yourself, you'll realize I was there all along waiting, waiting for you to humble yourself. Perhaps your life has not turned out the way you had hoped or planned. Perhaps you have spent it living for yourself rather than God and now you find yourself reaping the consequences of your choices and possibly you're thinking it's too late for me. It is not too late for you. It is never too late to follow God's path. Never. If your heart is beating this morning, it's not too late. If you choose to follow the Lord's righteous path, you will never regret it. Instead, the opposite is true. If you continue to go your own way, you will always regret the ways that you stray from his good path. Look at verse 10 again. All the paths of the Lord our steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's another way of saying the will of God is beautiful and good. Why would you want anything else? There's a second way God shows his goodness to us. Verse 11, the Lord forgives us when we repent of our sinning and return from our straying. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Lord, forgive me. Why? For your namesake. In other words, as another testimony of your goodness, Lord, forgive my sinning and my straying and return me to your good path. Look back at verse 7 that we looked at last week. Remember not the sins of my youth, or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And this is something that every believer later on in life uh, prays in, in some way. Lord, thank you that you've put my sins in the bottom of the ocean. Thank you that you do not remember the sins of my Youth, and he's reminding himself, he's reminding himself of the steadfast love of God when guilt and shame overtake his heart and mind. He looks to the Lord. The sins of his youth still plagued him in some way, they hindered him, they threatened to steal his joy. But when he was troubled with guilt, troubled with regret, he knew where to turn. He turned to the Lord who forgives for his name's sake. For the glory of his name. That's why God forgives. That we might forever sing the praises of the Savior who died so that we could be forgiven. Who rose again to give us new life. That we may walk in his good path. The sins of my youth is an interesting uh, term there in verse 7. It's quite an important topic uh, for us to think about. Uh, last week I began rereading J.C. Ryle's classic little book, Thoughts for Young Men. Reading it out loud with my sons. And um, again, just struck by the the piercing and powerful language used by this pastor in the 1800s, who who published many books, but he is actually best known for this little book, "Thoughts for Young Men." It came about because later on in his life, he was filled with a passion to instruct and warn and exhort. Young people, especially men, so that they would not waste their life on foolish pleasures. The first chapter is filled with passionate warnings to young men. Obviously, the warnings apply to young women as well. But listen to some of his words. He writes, Young men, do not be deceived. Do not think you can indulge your lusts and pleasures just as you choose when you are young and then go and serve God with ease later on. Do not think that you can live the life of a sinner and then die the death of a saint. It is a mockery to deal with God and your soul in such a way. It is an awful mockery to suppose you can give the flower of your strength to the world and the devil and then fob off the king of kings with the scraps and remains of your heart, the shipwreck and leftovers of your powers. It is an awful mockery. And you may find to your cost that it cannot be done. Habits, he says, are hard to break because habits have long roots. If sin is allowed to make its home in your heart, it will not be evicted at your command. Habit becomes second nature. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster they go, and the more out of control they are. Habits, like trees, are strengthened by age. A child can bend an oak when it is still a young sapling, but a hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. Young men, beware, beware of being taken by the devil's snares. He will try to throw dust in your eyes and prevent you from seeing anything in its true colors. He delights in making you think that evil is good and good is evil. He will disguise and dress up sin to make you fall in love with it. That's his work. And the devil's not just doing it to young men, as the audience that Ryle was writing to, but he's doing it to young women. He's doing it to old men. He's doing it to old women. He wants nothing more than for us to waste our lives walking on our own path, only then to come to the end of our lives filled with all kinds of regret, That we did not walk with God. Oh, may God's word do a work in our hearts and, and cause us to be passionately committed to walking with Him. So, young people, listen to me. Listen to me. Do not be deceived. The devil is after your soul and he is after your life. He wants to ruin you. And nothing will bring him more joy than to lead you astray into paths of sin so that you waste the one life that God gave to you. And then take you to hell with him. When it's all done This is what the wayward son In Jesus' parable of the lost son Had to learn He was the younger son in the family And he decided that He'd had enough of his older Goody two-shoes brother And he wanted to pave his own path I'm going to make my own way in this world And he did. And the path he paved led to what the Bible calls reckless living. The Bible doesn't list all the sins that were part of that time in his life, but we might imagine that he blew his entire inheritance on drugs and alcohol and sex and riotous living. Only to find himself alone. Spent all of his money on himself and his friends, and then came to experience the reality of Proverbs 19:4. Wealth attracts many friends, and even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. So when the money ran out, so did his friends, and he was all alone. There he sat alone. In the pig pen, literally, eating the scraps, filling his stomach with junk that we throw in the garbage that farmers throw to the swine. And finally he said, Enough is enough. Enough is enough. I'm weary. I'm weary of the failed promises that the devil and sin made to me. I'm going home. I'm going back to my good father. And that's what he did. And of course, the father in the parable depicts God in his abundant grace who receives any of us who will turn to him. When you say in your heart, enough is enough. I can't go on living like this. I won't go on living like this. And you turn to God, you will find a good father who graciously forgives you and gives you new life because of Christ and adopts you into his family and puts you on the path of abundant joy in Christ and yet a biblical warning remains for us don't take grace for granted repent of your sinning now repent of your straying now return to him before it is eternally too late God in His goodness is patient. He will forgive you and restore you, but you must repent. You must turn. You must turn away from sin to God through faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. That brings us to the third way that God shows His goodness to us in verses 12 and 13. The Lord blesses us with a good life when we fear him and follow his ways. Now, a good life is not a life that has no trouble because there is no life like that on the planet. I mean, you you can interview even the richest guy on the planet who you might think has no troubles because he can solve all of his problems with money And you'll still find someone who is troubled within their very soul. But the life of peace and contentment, the life of knowing God and walking with him, that's the good life. (laughs) That is the good life. And no matter how old you are, when God brings you into that good life, you understand Some of you were brought into that good life at a young age. You had the gift of gospel-loving parents or grandparents who who shared the truth of Christ with you. Some of us are first-generation believers who can't trace back as far as we can go in our lineage to find a gospel-loving believer in Jesus however old you are when the Lord brings you to that place where you see it's about Christ. It's not about me. But I want to follow the Lord. You enter into this good life that is way better than any of us ever deserved. I mean, what do we have that we have not received From the good hands of a good God. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will I instruct. God instructs people who fear him. God teaches the humble. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Let me ask you this morning what kind of inheritance do you want? Parents, what kind of inheritance are you planning to leave to your children? Money? Real estate? Antiques? A storage container filled with junk? And any of those might be good and nice in their proper perspective. But is that the best inheritance? No. There is one inheritance that rises above them all. And that is a testimony of having loved God and walked according to his way. The testimony of knowing that you're a humble sinner who needs the grace of God every day. When I think of inheritance, I think of Psalm 128, which says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And he goes on to talk specifically to uh, the man who is, is a husband. How does he experience this? blessing from God. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. I'll never forget my first trip to the former uh, Soviet Union in February of 2000, and my students asked me uh, if I could show them pictures of my family and <clears throat> didn't have a phone with a camera back then, so I hauled out this little picture album that my wife had put together for me to take along. And um, as my students were looking through this album, they, they kept repeating this phrase over and over and over. And, and, and I said to my translator, I said, What are they saying? They're saying, you are a very rich pastor. And I I said to my translator, what do you mean? I mean, we've been married 14 years, living paycheck to paycheck, and don't even have our own house. What do you mean? And he said, because of your wife and children, they consider you to be the richest man of all. What a gift, that little sentence of encouragement was. It doesn't matter what we have in this world. And then God surprises us in many ways and blesses us beyond anything we ever thought possible. And yet, what is our inheritance? What are we trying to leave here? A testimony? A ministry? For generations to come? I was living the good life, and I am living the good life, building up an inheritance of faith that I pray will last for many generations to come. Because we only have one life to do this, folks. Let's stop living it for ourselves, and let's live it for others, and let's think about the testimony of God's name in the future long after we are gone? Will we be known as men and women who walked with God? Well, how do we receive this good life? Verse 12 says it's by fearing the Lord. And fearing the Lord means respecting Him and and coming in humble reverence before him and then obeying him as he as he instructs us let me help you to understand what this means by having you turn to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes two books to the right in your Bible look at the last few verses of the book of Ecclesiastes if you're not familiar with this oddly named book um, it was written by a king who also was a preacher near the end of his life. I believe it's written by King Solomon. It seems to have enough internal evidence to to lead us in that direction. And Solomon, though he was the wisest man on the planet, he spent much of his life in foolishness. And verse 8 of uh, Ecclesiastes 12 signifies the conclusion of the book by repeating his his main premise of the book, which is vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And understood in the context of the whole book, what it means is when you live for yourself and indulge your own sinful habits of the flesh, it all comes to nothing. That's the testimony of the book of Ecclesiastes, how to waste your life. That's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes because King Solomon had tried it all. He tried everything. He tried laughter, alcohol, building as many houses and palaces for himself as he could and having over a thousand wives, possessions and wealth that we can't even imagine. And he sought satisfaction And meaning in life through work, and the things that he could accumulate because of the cash he could get from work. And he comes to the end of his life, and he says, "Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity." And so then it goes on in verse uh, nine. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and. And studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. This is undoubtedly a reference to the book of Proverbs primarily. As the Holy Spirit used Solomon to collect all of these sayings of wisdom and put them into... This book that's given by one shepherd, capital S, God. And it says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. We like to quote that second half of that verse to our Bible college professors. (laughs) They didn't think it was very funny. There is much weariness in much study. But then you come to verse 13. Here it is, folks. You want to know what life is about? Here it is. The end of the matter when all has been heard, when all has been considered, when all has been evaluated is this. Fear God and keep his commandments. There it is. For this is the whole duty of man. Why? Why should we be motivated to fear God and keep His commandments? Because verse 14 is true. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The motivation for fearing God trusting him and obeying him is that one day we are going to die. One day there will be a tombstone in the ground with our name on it. And one day we will stand before God, the judge of heaven and he will judge us. If we are in Christ then the consequences of our sin have been removed by the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus But if we are not in Christ, then there will be a judgment that begins. An eternal judgment in a place the Bible calls hell. But God offers to us the gift of salvation and divine rescue. And he says to every one of us, It doesn't matter where you are at right now in your life. It doesn't matter what path of sin has been your favorite path. Return to me. Come to me. Say enough is enough. I won't live this way anymore. Come to him. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your very own savior. As your very own Lord. And God will forgive you. And put you on his good path. God we are overwhelmed by your mercy this morning. For every one of us who has any sense of reality and common sense. Knows that we are far from being redeemable if Our redemption is dependent upon us. There's no hope. But praise God it does not. Our redemption depends upon the mercy of a Savior who died in our place, took our sin, took our foolishness, took your wrath away from us that we might not only be forgiven, but we might be placed upon your good path the path that Jesus referred to as the abundant life that he came to give to us. God, I pray, do a work in each of our hearts. You know where each of us is at with you. And so we ask that you would just do the work that is necessary, that we might be on your good path, leading to your good blessing, because we are humbly coming to you and trusting in you in the name of jesus we pray